Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, who's our fellow COO of Vet Girl. So today, both Justine and Garrett are going to talk about some of our pet peeves in veterinary medicine. And we actually started with a top 10 list, but we stopped at about 12 to 13. So this is designed to be a funny, humorous podcast today, but there are actually important tidbits that you can learn from today. So Garrett, start us off. What's your number one pet peeve in veterinary medicine? Well, I don't know if it's my number one pet peeve, Justine, because before we got on this podcast, we were jokingly going back and forth and discussing how angry some of these pet peeves make us. And I'm not sure that one is more pet peevey to me than others. It's kind of like the old Seinfeld episode where they get around the uh, holiday table and they air their grievances. Well, these are kind of some of our pet peeves and our grievances. So I guess I'll start off here. One of my biggest pet peeves is being that Justine and I work obviously in different practices as Justine is based out of Minnesota and I'm based out of the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, but we both work in specialty hospitals where there's 24-hour care and inevitably that means that you're going to have cases transferred to you, whether it's transferred from another veterinarian, general practitioner, or even transferred from the ER as another doctor goes off shift. But the pet peeve that I'm talking about here when we start out on this podcast is an incomplete medical record specifically related to the pet's past medical history. So if a pet comes in and a medical record is generated, I want to know what previous medical illnesses that pet had, and even maybe as important, what medications and doses that pet is on when they came into the hospital. For example, if it's a diabetic, it's not just sufficient in the previous medication box to write insulin. I want to know the type of insulin. It's NPH, eight units subcutaneously every 12 hours. Or if it's Clavamox, it's 125 milligrams by mouth every 12 hours. I don't want to have to guess. And at the same time, if you did ask that question to the owner, make sure to write it down. Because if I call them the following day to introduce myself as the new doctor on the case, it looks, in my opinion, very unprofessional to ask the same questions. What dose of insulin is your dog on? What, what do you mean? Is that not written down? I spoke to the other veterinarian about that yesterday. So it comes off as a poor medical and professional experience having to repeat questions. And at the same time, it's not appropriate medical care to not have that information to treat them as best as we can. All right. I'm going to interject. I totally agree with you. But at the same time, I know that referring vets get my medical record and they're like, what'd you guys find on the ultrasound from two days ago? And so we oftentimes when we're super busy in the ER, not all the soaps are updated, not all the fast ultrasounds are typed in. So uh, we definitely have to cut each other, you know, cut everyone a break, but uh, really important. Remember your medical record is a legal document. So you don't scribble anything out. You do one straight line across if you're crossing something out. Ideally use a black pen because it's a legal document. Ideally you don't use a highlighter, but Garrett brings up some great points. We want to make sure to have a complete medical record to review. And we want to make sure it's professional, which brings up my number two pet peeve, which is spelling vomiting with two T's. If you learn anything from today's Vet Girl podcast, vomiting only is one T. Okay. Same thing with Lyme disease. It is not Lyme's disease. There's only one old Lyme, Connecticut, where it was discovered. So again, please don't say it's Lyme's. It's Lyme, yo. Garrett, what's your next pet peeve? Well, let me just interject for one second. 
I agree with Justine, spelling, spelling, spelling. And it goes back to my first point about a professional document. Many of us now use some form of computerized medical record. I know there are some out there that still don't. But if you do use a computerized medical record one way or another, there has to be some way to spell check. Most of the veterinary programs out there have a built-in spell checker. And if not, you can always copy and paste your notes into a Word document or your email browser and just make sure things are not spelled correctly because yes, it is a legal document, but it's a professional document. And we want to make sure that another veterinarian that reads it has that same document as well as with the pet owner. To me, it's quite embarrassing to send home a document to an owner with grammatical or spelling errors. We are the medical professionals. We need to act and look professional just the same. So make sure if you do use a computerized medical record, you're using that spell check feature. Wait, hold on, Garrett. I have to say, my little trick is to abbreviate. Dude, I can't spell intussusception, so I just do I-N-T-U-S-S-P-X-N, which I think is a great shortcut for my my little soap. So when in doubt, use AHA or AVMA-approved abbreviations, but you can also help clean up your medical record or expedite your efficiency in typing up medical records with some abbreviations also. All right, Garrett, what's your next pet peeve? One of my next pet peeves is making sure that we use finances wisely. I think we all understand that the cost of veterinary medicine has gone up, and part of that is good. It's gone up because we are now using more advanced diagnostics. We have more diagnostic options available to us, and pets are getting better care overall, both in general practice and specialty medicine. But I think we do have to use our money wisely because not everyone comes in with an open checkbook and no financial limitations. And when I get a client that comes into the ER, I typically try to give them at least three options. And we can call them the gold, the silver, and the bronze plan. You can call them the, the Lexus, the Honda Accord, and the Geo Metro plan. Whatever you want to call it to make it uh, relevant to your clients in your practice, I try to give at least three options to owners and help them make an informed general decision. With that said, I always tell clients if they do have financial concerns, my parting line is I can't do the same thing for a lower cost. Ultimately, it's not my hospital. I am obliged to give you the general information. With that said, the best way I can treat your pet is to use your finances wisely. And that is typically involves treatment because it makes no sense for me to spend most of your money on diagnostics and then have a little bit left over to actually treat your pet for whatever condition that may be. So I will do the best that I can in helping to make guided medical decisions using finances wisely mostly on treatment. Of course, if I don't do the x-ray, for example, on a dog that is urinating blood, I may not know if there's a bladder stone. But the reality is I have to treat for the treatable, and I'm not going to spend all the money on diagnostic imaging, whether that's x-rays or ultrasound. So it's to make sure that we listen to our clients and use their finances wisely, because ultimately, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. Even the client that comes in that has financial concerns, they still want the same thing that you do, is to treat their pet the best they can, and we'll help them make that decision, treating them the best they can with the finances available to us. Awesome. I have the same philosophy, Garrett, and it's probably because we practice at the same place in West Philly. And so having done both of our residencies and emergency critical care at Penn, you have to be able to practice street medicine. And so I always say, 
you know, right now we graduate veterinary students who, you know, when you say what's your diagnostic plan, it's uh, CBC, chem, UA, chest rads, abdominal rads, abdominal ultrasound, CT, MRI, when in real life that's going to cost, you know, $5,000. And so my philosophy is be able to practice the way you would practice if it was your own pet. If your cat vomited, would you do a CBC chem T4 chest abdominal rads, abdominal ultrasound? No, you'd probably do sub-Q fluids. You might do a renal panel, you know, so work with owners as best you can. So again, our pet peeve is not being able to practice street medicine. We always want to practice to the highest standard. We want to practice to that ivory tower level, but in real life, like Garrett said, offer all the options. This is the ideal plan. Absolutely work with them when you can. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves is with the block cat. Again, don't spend all the money on diagnostics. There's this great paper by Leonal. I wrote it during my residency. And my resident mates joked and called it TPR of block cats, temperature, pulse rate, respiratory of block cats. And what this study basically showed was the more hypothermic and hypotensive the patient was, the more likely that their potassium was greater than 10 in these unstable block cats. And so again, if there's financial limitations, I'd rather spend that money on sedating them, unblocking them, making sure that they have appropriate analgesia, uh, keeping them diuresis and IV fluid therapy. I don't need a CBC chem on initial presentation because guess what? They're going to be azotemic. They're going to be hyperkalemic. They're going to have a metabolic acidosis. So again, don't use up all the money on diagnostics, focus it on therapeutics and be able to practice street medicine. All right, Garrett, what's your next pet peeve? My next pet peeve, and I know Justine gave me a little bit of a dig earlier when we were talking about the medical records, but it does bring up a good point in that it's hard to know what every veterinarian was thinking at the time. And the veterinarian may have been thinking that was the best thing for them, the client, and that's what the client may have allowed. But the pet peeve in general is making sure we are cordial, nice, and understanding of other veterinarians and not judging other veterinarians. Because like Justine said earlier, sometimes in the ER, for example, or for the same fact, the same matter, the general practice, you may not have time to immediately generate a 100% complete medical record. And so if somebody reads that when it hasn't been fully completed, it may be easier to judge or think you know what they were thinking at the time. But no, unfortunately, we don't. And unfortunately, it's not, I think, appropriate to to ridicule, to judge, to uh, think poorly of another veterinarian without speaking to them. So communication is always very important. If a client, for example, comes back to the general practice and says, you know, I went to that emergency room and they told me I had to euthanize my cat. Is that really what they said, or was that just one of the options for the very sick cat that had a closed pyometra in the middle of the night, and they had $150? Unfortunately, yes, we would love to be able to treat every pet to the best of our ability, but there, there is a component of finances to what we do. And that may be the euthanasia discussion, just one of the three or four options that I gave that client. It may have been we could do the pyometra 
right now for you in the middle of the night. We could put your cat on fluids overnight and then transfer back to your primary care veterinarian the following morning, option two. Option number three is I can give your cat sub-Q fluids and a subcutaneous injection of an antibiotic, and then you can bring your cat home right now and then to your primary care veterinarian tomorrow, or euthanasia if you don't think this is something you're going to be able to financially afford anywhere. And what the client takes away is they said I should euthanize my cat. And clearly that wasn't the discussion. So the point of this little diatribe here is to make sure that we're understanding that veterinarians shouldn't be judged by one document, one piece of paper. And if there is any concern about a treatment plan or a discussion, the best recommendation is to pick up the phone, not an email or a text message. Pick up the phone and speak to your colleague. What was discussed with that client? What was the clinical presentation? How can we best help and work through this together? That's the best way to build relationships, to maintain relationships, and ultimately provide the best care to our clients and their pets. Great point, Garrett. Let's not talk smack about other veterinarians. My general philosophy resorts back to the kindergarten rules. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. (laughs) All right. Garrett, I might steal one of your pet peeves. Go for it. All right. It's being a case dodger. Good one. Good (laughs) one. Yes. Both Garrett and I, before we did our emergency critical care residency, did an extra year super internship, what they call a fellowship. And it was a tough year. You know, you're working overnights, you are trying to clear the ER. And I always get tachycardic when there's a huge full waiting room because I feel badly for those people because they've been waiting for hours. And so one of the things that I learned at Angel, one of the things I learned at Penn is you have to be quick and efficient in the ER. And so my biggest pet peeve is being a case dodger. When people don't want to see a case, that's just really frustrating because it's destructive to the nature of the team. It makes everything more inefficient it also makes the pet owner and the pet wait. So again, don't be a case dodger. We went into this field because we're passionate about saving lives. So let's save them in the ER, even if it's just that vomiting dog or cat, even if it's a block cat. Now, I will say, if it's in the last half hour before your shift and someone else is coming on soon, I'm okay with that because I know you have a ton of medical records to complete. So I'm totally fine with that case waiting until the next person. But in general... Let's not be case dodgers. All right, Garrett, what's your next one? My next one is treating wisely. And the one thing that I see, and I know, Justine, you and I have had this conversation before, specifically goes back to fluid therapy. And the nature of this podcast, we're not going to review all different types of fluid therapy. But I think the one that I'd like to point out are subcutaneous fluids. As Justine was mentioning earlier, I always try as well to treat the pet as if it were my pet. So if I had a middle-aged dog that, you know, maybe got into some food last night that they shouldn't have, or, you know, it was a holiday party and they got a little bit of, you know, treats that they shouldn't have. If that dog comes in vomiting, do you really need to do full blood work and ultrasound, abdominal radiographs, hospitalized for 48 hours? Would you do that if this were your dog? And the answer is probably not. If that were my dog, we would probably give a dose of subcutaneous fluids, some meropidant, and see how things transpire. Certainly, if the vomiting continues, then we need to know what else may be going on or provide a little bit more care. But then going back to the fluids, let's talk about valuable subcutaneous fluids. This could be subcutaneous fluids for the one-time vomiting dog, or it could be subcutaneous fluids for the financially 
a restricted owner that can't hospitalize, and it's using our subcutaneous fluids wisely. A phrase that I like to use is peeing in the ocean. That's not what we want to do. Do you think if you pee in the ocean, you're going to see a dramatic rise in that current? You're not. And so if you give a 40 kilogram Labrador 250 milliliters of subcutaneous fluids, do you think that's really doing anything? Let's make a simple equation here, a simple discussion point with simple math, hopefully. If you have a 30 kilogram dog that comes in 10% dehydrated, 30 kilogram dog, 10% dehydrated, what are they missing the moment they walk through the door to see you? Well, basically their fluid deficit is their body weight in kilograms times their percent dehydration, which is end up in that equation going to be three liters. So that 30 kilogram dog that comes in 10% dehydrated is going to be behind three liters. A 30 kilogram dog cut that in half 5% dehydrated is still then 1.5 liters behind the moment they walk in the door. And if you take a simple gastroenteritis case, let's say they walk in at 10 o'clock in the morning because they were vomiting overnight and they're 1.5 liters behind. Just use that as the math argument here. Well, what do you usually do? You give them subcutaneous fluids, you give them some meropidant or another anti-emetic, and you tell them what? No food or water for the rest of the day today. If they do well, they're comfortable, they're happy, maybe tomorrow morning, give them a little bit of water and the start of a bland diet and see how things go, et cetera, et cetera. What are we also not taking into account? Well, we know they were 1.5 liters behind if they were 5% dehydrated, but what else goes into a fluid therapy plan? Maintenance and ongoing losses, aside from your insensible losses, when you tell them not to eat or drink for the rest of the day, they're also not getting their maintenance, and they also have potentially some ongoing losses. And so you're talking two, two and a half liters they may actually need to keep up that rest of the day. So giving them 250 milliliters is going to do what? That's peeing in the ocean. Now, it's hard for me to tell you exactly how much subcutaneous fluids to give that patient. Every dog's going to be a little bit different. For example, a big, meaty Labrador probably has more room in that subcutaneous space than the well-muscled Greyhound. And so every dog will be a little bit different. But at least in my head, I try to decide if I can get somewhere between 30 to 50 milliliters per kilogram into that dog. So if it's a 30-kilogram lab, 30 to 50 milliliters per kilogram. Can I get 900 to maybe 1,500 in that dog safely without distending or, or stretching the skin too much? And I'll go from there. Again, every patient, every breed is going to be a little bit different, but make sure we're using our subcutaneous fluids wisely. Make sure we're not peeing in the ocean. I'm going to follow up on that because I think you bring up a really good point. And especially with feline urethral obstruction patients, for some reason, it seems like all my black cat owners have financial limitations. And I think that if we're really behind on our fluids, then we're not able to clear that black cat's urinary line well. Most of the time, I put my black cats on 60 mils an hour. If they have a gallop, I'll turn them down to 50 mils an hour. If they have a heart murmur, I'll turn them down to 30 to 40 mils per hour. And don't get me wrong, I'm assessing these guys frequently. But the main reason why is because we know that based on a recent CSU study, 50% of black cats have a post-obstructive diuresis, which means you need to know what normal urine output is. It's one to two mils per kg per hour. 
So if the cat has a post-obstructive diuresis, it's urinating six mils per kg per hour, and it's urinating you know, 40 mils an hour, you have to match your ins and outs. So what goes in must come out. What goes out must come in. So if they're urinating 40 mils an hour, they have to be on at least 41 mils an hour. And I always feel like if you put them on twice maintenance or two and a half times maintenance, you have them on 20, 25 mils an hour, it's not meeting their needs. You're not keeping up with that clearance of the urinary catheter. All that struvite crap and grit is still in the urinary catheter. So if 12, 24 hours later, they still have a lot of hematuria, consider being more aggressive with your fluid therapy. Now, another pet peeve I have is not knowing when to refer. We veterinary specialists are here to help you. And I know a lot of times the owner doesn't actually want to refer, but there are certain scenarios where if it's really, really complicated, I do recommend referral for 24-hour care. And I would say some of the particular cases I would say that need to be referred immediately are septic peritonitis cases, cases that are acute abdomen, pericardial effusions. Again, a lot of owners will decline this, but if that option's available, please know you can always pick up a phone just to talk to a veterinary specialist. So hopefully you have one near you who's helpful. Garrett, what about you? I'm going to go into one that I think is a little bit of a a funnier type of pet peeve that most of us can probably relate to in one way or another. So you're in the room with a client, you're discussing the pet's care, and then what happens? The cell phone rings and they go into their pocket or their pocketbook or whatever it may be, their, their messenger bag. They take out the phone and they pick up the phone and start talking to the other person on the phone. Now, I'm okay. Don't get me wrong. If it's a quick, hey, I'm sorry, I'm in here with a veterinarian. Can I call you right back? Because I understand that it may be a concerned friend or family member that knew they were going to the veterinary hospital with a, a sick pet. But when they actually start getting into a conversation with the other person, that is my cue to stand up and politely walk out. I don't want to know about their day or what their activities are for the rest of the day. I have to be, as Justine was talking about earlier, an efficient veterinarian in the ER. And there is a waiting room full of people that want my attention. And so to me, picking up a cell phone in the room is a little bit distasteful and one that I'm going to walk out, go evaluate another pet. And when it looks like they're off the phone or off their conversation, then I'll come back and finish my conversation. But it certainly is a pet peeve with all the instant technology we have when somebody has a conversation with a friend or family member on the phone when I'm staring at them in the ER or examination room. Totally agree. I will say that one efficiency tip that I learned is when I go in and there's multiple people, or if it's just one person, I'll often say, is there a partner or spouse that you want me to talk to at the same time and have on speakerphone? Just that way you don't have to re-explain everything again to the partner 20 minutes later. Um, So sometimes having that phone is an advantage because you can put them on speakerphone, but I agree. I hate that too when they pick up the phone in the room with you. Well, Justine, I think that's all of our pet peeves for today. It does tend to be a little bit of a fun podcast to make, so I'm sure we will be back with other Vet Girl pet peeves at another time. A couple of points for our Vet Girl listeners out there. Number one, go to the iTunes store and check out our new Vet Girl wellness app. Justine and I are very passionate about wellness and self-care, and so we just released a free Vet Girl wellness app. So type that into the app store and download that for free to improve your wellness each and every day. 
While you are in the App Store and the general iTunes area, make sure to rate our podcast. We love hearing from you. We hope these podcasts are a helpful way for you to learn on the run wherever you are around the world. Our podcasts have been downloaded in over 170 different countries. So please go ahead and take a moment to rate our app on iTunes. We also hope if you've not seen this already, Vet Girl will be hosting our first ever Vet Girl U conference in August of 2018 near the Mall of America in Minnesota. It's going to be a unique TED-like conference, amazing speakers, clinically relevant, practical. We hope to see you there. So from Justine and myself and the whole Vet Girl team, thanks for listening to our Vet Girl podcast, and we'll see you at the next one.